part of the greatness and the challenge of healthcare today is there's so much available and everyone is earnest, but you've got to get them out of their silos and you have to get everyone on the same page. with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Welcome to another episode of At Home On Air, conversations that matter for the quality of the experience of later life. I'm Susie Stadler, an architect and also the executive director of At Home with Growing Older. We're talking about a very important topic that concerns us all, medical advocacy. Our complicated medical system sometimes requires an advocate to ask the right questions, get to the right person, and receive the care which fits us best at the right time. Our conversation with Patricia Knight, a medical advocate, and Talia Onorato, a care manager, will shed light on the role of medical advocacy. Welcome, Talia and Patricia. We are so glad you will be sharing your insights and shed some light on this important topic. Thank you, Susie, for having us today, and thank you, especially Patricia, for joining us and for bringing your expertise to the table. Can you start off by sharing what your role is as a patient advocate and why and when you get called to duty? Thank you, Susie and Talia. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Let me just start by saying that as a private patient advocate, I help my clients navigate the healthcare system by providing reassurance, support, and addressing any barriers or roadblocks that come along. I only work for the client. I'm not hired by the hospital or any third party. That's what makes me a private patient advocate. My clients come to me one of two ways. They come because they're having a procedure or they're about to start a diagnostic workup and either their family or themselves want someone to be there to support them. And so I start and work with them, going to the doctors, accompanying them to tests, whatever, or say they're having a knee replacement. I help them get through the surgery, get settled, get home, get the treatment. And then the other way is I get contacted by usually a family member because the client and the family are in a medical crisis at the moment and really need help for one reason or another. Thank you, Patricia. In care management, we primarily work with older adults. So what population do you serve? And does this include people with disabilities and mental health? Certainly. At the moment, most of my clients are older adults, seniors, as we say, some with mental issues, some with disabilities. I've had a few clients with Alzheimer's, but I also work with adults of all ages. I've had people in their 20s, 30s, and above. The one area I don't work is pediatrics. It's not so much the medical issues, but more the specialties. I'm just not that familiar with them, so I have it. 
And I see from your bio that you've worn several different hats. Can you share how your background in nursing and law contribute to your role as a patient advocate? I think somehow I got here because for a long time, I just couldn't seem to stop going to school. But anyway, as a nurse, that provides me with quite a background in terms of health conditions and the issues that arise. And even if I don't know or I'm unfamiliar with the diagnosis, I understand the research when I find it, and I understand the language. Also, although you walk into a hospital these days, it's all modern and slick and there's lots of technology, but honestly, I walk in and I feel like I'm home. They haven't changed. The situation, the patient experience is still the same. They're there because they've had an accident or they've had surgery, they're sick. They're usually anxious and they're now navigating and dealing with a very unfamiliar world with a language and process all of its own. That's what my nursing brings. As an attorney, I was involved in defending medical malpractice claims. So that has given me probably more knowledge than I want about how things can go wrong and where the errors occur and where you really kind of need to be vigilant to make sure that errors don't occur. And then when needed, the litigator in me comes out and I can be more assertive, a little more aggressive. I don't have to do that very often. I find most of the time healthcare providers are actually happy to have an advocate, but sometimes you run into a bureaucracy that needs a little shaking up or you find a provider that isn't being completely cooperative or responsive to the issues. So then I bring a little of the, you know, assertive litigator. I love the combination. It's a way for me to actually have a very positive experience in my work. I love being an advocate. As a care manager, we do share some similar qualities and roles in helping people navigate as they age and as they transition to the aging process and all that is encompassed. Can you identify any crossovers or for example, what can a patient advocate do that maybe a care manager like myself does not? Well, I started out wanting to be a patient advocate and thinking that mostly what I was going to do was going to focus on the medical health care issues. And so sometimes that's what happens. I have a short-term assignment with a client. They're going to have surgery. They want me there for pre-op. This was pre-COVID. I see them to the operating room door. I meet with the doctor afterwards. I make sure they get settled in their room and the post-op orders are in place. I visit them, make sure they're being taken care of and there for the discharge to be clear of discharge orders and they can suddenly get the care they need at home. I may go back for a few return visits to the doctor and then we're done. They may call me later, but basically that's the experience. And that's sort of what I thought I was going to be doing. And then I found that there were different clients where the journey only began in the hospital and they were going to need care post-hospitalization. And along the way, I've had to learn and develop resources for how do you get the skilled nursing facility How do you get the discharge planner to work the way you want them to work? Which facilities are good? Which facilities have acute rehab? What does it require for acute rehab? Maybe this person now needs a fiduciary. Maybe they should consider congregate living. Maybe they need a will, you know, all sorts of things. And it's not necessarily that I do them all, but I have to look for resources. And so I think that 
what you do and what I do are parallel experiences. But I think I'm going to turn it back on you a bit and ask you what you think is different from what I do. Well, thank you for sharing that. I really see us as a parallel entity with the same focus of supporting older adults, their families, or responsible parties in guiding them through the resources available and for standing up for what their rights are, what their wishes are, and helping to provide the resources to meet those needs. What I, in learning more about patient advocacy, the difference that I do see, which is a benefit, is you have the medical background. Care management is more of an interdisciplinary team that may consist of like myself, a gerontologist, social workers, sometimes nurses, sometimes physical therapists. We all are educated in the resources available, the complexities that come with aging, and we make these connections with the community in which we serve. We know where to go when help is needed. You, however, have that first and forefront knowledge in the hospital setting. So I would say, again, we ride upon the same stream in terms of our goal and purpose and the help that we want to provide. You have more of a concrete medical basis. And so I would say, if you ever were interested in becoming a care manager, I welcome you aboard. Thank you. What I envy is, you know, you have this team approach and resources. And for me, as an advocate, I've had to learn resources. I have some pretty good ones now. Sometimes it's really hard to get in there and find just the right place for the person or the right care, or sometimes there are resources I don't know about. And I'm always amazed when I start looking. Here is someone who helps people downsize. Because if you start talking to someone who's lived in their home for 30 years, and it's come to the point where I think congregate living is where they should be. That's easy enough to provide. But then there's this house that has 30 years of memories in it. And how do you go about doing that? Well, I found out there's a whole group of people out there that does that. Very seldom am I the only resource. Sometimes I'm working with family members, but you know, you're taking on a real responsibility for this person's welfare and you want to get them the right person. You, you don't want someone who's going to come in and take advantage of them. There's just a lot of concern. And I'm very fond of my clients. You know, we, we spend a lot of time together. So I envy your resources. <laughs> Whenever it comes to helping humans and their care needs, it's a team effort. Whether it comes from our clients, their loved ones, their responsible parties, their physicians, any outsources. And so what you may bring to the table may be pieces that I don't have. We don't compartmentalize the work that we do. We open the ground. And if we can help one person by merging together, I think we're doing the work that we need to do. I think I agree. And you know, you remind me that within the patient advocacy area, a great deal of my work involves bringing the medical team together, especially if there are multiple medical specialties involved, making sure that everyone is on the same page and that all of the specialties are getting all the records and know what's going on. And then when you start talking about discharge or planning, you know, what kind of post-care are they going to need and getting everyone on the same team. Part of the greatness and the challenge of healthcare today is there's so much available and everyone is earnest, but you've got to get them out of their silos. We have to get 
everyone on the same page. And then you factor in the family on top of the client and maybe the family's in New York. I mean, I run into this, the family's in Los Angeles or Arizona and the patient is here, the client is here and someone has to be funneling that information and coordinating it. In bringing up the multiple specialties of physicians and the challenges with spine streaming them to where medications are not getting prescribed by multiple doctors, that one physician knows XYZ or is prescribing for this, the other physician is prescribing for that. Just bringing everyone to that common ground is such a great importance in helping others. And yet those that we serve don't realize that. And really without your presence or my presence in the work that we do, that gets overlooked. And hence the problems that are a result of. I have a client that is having a problem with his teeth. Okay. So his general dentist looks at his teeth, but now he needs oral surgery. And then, you know, we have to go to the oral surgeon. I have another client who has a cyst, but because of some complications, she can't just go to a dermatologist. She'll have to go to a regular general surgeon. It doesn't always follow logic. What you think would be the logical approach to something and finding that out, finding the right path, the right specialist that can be That can be challenging and getting everything organized. And yet you doing that versus putting that on your client is such a great relief and makes the process feel as though you've got somebody at your side. And so I commend you for that. And I think a big part of what we do is to provide that respite, relief, support, and an added layer of protection to those we help. There's a concept called selective inattention. And if you get too stressed in life, or if you're under a great deal of stress, you frequently don't hear what's being said to you. And there's nothing more stressful than being in the doctor's office and having the doctor explain things to you. And so I think one of the great services I provide is being with them, writing it down, sending it to them, translating it, repeating it, because so many times people will say, oh no, they never told me that. They never told me that. Well, they didn't hear that. And it frequently happens. So yeah, it's necessary support. Yeah, and greatly appreciated. In lieu of time, I do want to just acknowledge your passion of end of life planning and care. I'd love you to expand upon that and also possibly provide us an example of some of the work that you've done in terms of end of life care and planning. Thank you. In preparation for this talk, I learned that Katie Butler had given a podcast for this group. And so I listened to it and I absolutely agree with everything she had to say. I think everyone's entitled to make choices about their end of their life. I also feel like many people want to avoid that at all costs. So one of the first things I do with people is talk to them about whether they have an advanced care directive. And we sit down and we talk about it. I am of the belief that a detailed advanced care directive is a good idea for two reasons. One, just the exercise itself of going through the many questions I have forces people or gives people an opportunity to begin to think about it. And what would I want? And it is true. You cannot plan for everything when you do your advanced care directive. You're trying to set forth general beliefs. You may change your mind when the time comes. You're generally doing it while you're healthy. So it's easy to say, oh, I would do this or I would do that. 
just drafting this gets people thinking. The other thing is that as important as your advanced care directive is, your person who has your power of attorney is really important. If you want your wishes to be taken seriously, if you have a detailed advanced care directive, your POA can use that in talking to healthcare providers about what you want or you wouldn't want. That's a really good way to get things started. To the extent that people can exercise control, I believe they deserve a dignified, peaceful end of life that suits their religious, moral, whatever beliefs. And obtaining that isn't always possible, but requires a willingness to have an open communication with the providers. And again, in that way, the client's choices are informed, to quote Katie. Your doctor is not your boss. Your doctor is your provider. It should be supportive. And people need to be able to communicate with their doctors in a straightforward way if they really want to get straight answers. Now, this is tricky for me because my job is not to impose what I think people need on them, but to help them get what they think they need. And so if we're in a meeting with a doctor, I'm not going to ask that question about prognosis. I'm going to have talked to the client or the family if I think they're in that place about, I think what we really need to get here is a sense of prognosis, what we're looking at, what the treatment options are, and we probably ought to do that now. And some people are ready for it and some people aren't. And so it's a gingerly approach on my part. I have an example of a client I'm working with now who is mid-60s extremely intelligent person who has pretty much led her life the way she's always wanted it to be, was diagnosed last fall with stage three pancreatic cancer, which I think most of you know is not a very hopeful diagnosis. It's very hard to detect. And by the time it's detected, it's not easy to treat. I have worked with her as an advocate for other processes, so I was involved. And I have to tell you, it has been a most amazing journey for me. Personally, she's been part of a major clinic for cancer and she's not a frivolous person. You know, she's not making this decision without thinking about it. So we had meetings, Zoom meetings with every specialist, the oncologist, the radiologist for radiation therapy, the pain management person about spinal blocks and a surgeon before we got to palliative care or symptom management. And with each Zoom meeting, she introduced herself and the people that were with her and said, you know, we're all familiar with this situation and highly educated. So we really want straightforward answers. And she got straightforward answers. I was struck because I have a bias about oncologists and their need to push treatment. The bias is that they always push therapy beyond what is really good idea. And in each one of these situations, the specialists treated her with absolute respect and compassion. They told her what her options were. She asked the question, well, what will I gain for this? What's the downside? And they were straightforward and yet not punitive and not scary, just factual, you know, a real conversation and very supportive of her decision. Also saying, you know, if you need us, if you want something, come back. They didn't dismiss her. And then we met with the palliative care physician in December. My client made clear that what she wants to do is use medical aid in dying. Again, the palliative care doctor talked to her, got her wishes, and 15 days later, she had the prescription. 
one of the lessons for me was that sometimes I think people don't get the answers they probably should get because they're afraid to ask the questions and they're afraid of the answers. And so they feel better kind of turning it over to the doctor. And if the doctor says, yes, it'll be a little bit uncomfortable or you'll lose your hair, but you know, you'll probably get six more months. It is hard when you're faced with these really difficult problems and people are afraid, it's hard to get those answers. And I try hard to work with clients when they're in this situation to work around and get to getting those answers. If I can't get them for the client and the families involved, I at least try to get the family to hear things. Sometimes they're a little more able and maybe there is a family member who can work with the client a little better. Well, that's a beautiful story. I am curious, did your client, before choosing the end-of-life option, did he or she go through any treatments? Nothing. Other than during the diagnostic process, they put in a stent, which prevents jaundice building up and all that uncomfortableness. She's taken pain medication. And the amazing thing is, you know, we're almost six months. She's in hospice now. She's doing just fine. I mean, she's not living a great life, but she's doing quite well and living her life and walking and able to manage the end of her life the way she wants to win. I don't know many people like her. I don't know anyone like her, actually. It is kind of an amazing experience, but I have learned lessons about if you can be straightforward with a doctor, they will be straightforward with you, I think. And sometimes you have to work hard to get there. But basically, I believe that more information is better. Well, I wish her the best and a comfortable journey as she goes through this process and leaves this earth that we live in. And also, it's a testament to the work that you do to enable she and her family to get these answers and be able to stand up. She sounds quite strong, but many are not and are reliant on your role to be that voice. I do understand that you're volunteering right now for an end-of-life organization. So I'm a volunteer with End of Life Choices California, and our mission is providing information and resources to people so that they can make a choice on how they want to end their life. And we do this by having a volunteer take the phones every day. There's a volunteer on the phone every day. People have a central number and they call in and we take their history and talk to them and find out whether they're in hospice and what it is they want to do. Some people are seeking help for using medical aid and dying. Others aren't eligible or don't think they're eligible. So we talk about alternatives and ways that they might approach ending their lives. You know, the issue of chronic pain or failing, people want to end their life, but they don't really have a diagnosis of six months or less to live. We also have a website with articles, resources on the law, et cetera. I'm very happy to have found this organization because I think it's important work. Medical aid and dying is not totally complicated, but you do have to navigate it and people need help that way. Thankful that you're there to help, Tricia. I just want to say how thankful I am to have met you and had this opportunity to get to know what it is that you do. And Thank you for those that you serve and the work that you put towards others. Thank you. Yes, thank you both. And the link for this nonprofit is at endoflifechoicesca.org.
listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. It's a great opportunity to have a medical advocate and a care manager in the same room. So Adrian asks, is medical advocacy care management covered by health insurance, Medicare? How are medical advocates hired or contracted? Unfortunately, it's not covered by insurance. It's private pay. In my practice, I have a pretty straightforward two-page letter of agreement with attachments, which outline my fees, what I will and won't do, and what services they expect me to provide. Though every organization has their own, I always get a release or permission to get their medical information. I haven't signed that. But no, right now, insurance doesn't cover it. Edith asks, is there an organization of private advocates the same way there is an organization for care managers? There are professional organizations. There's a couple of them. Some of the schools are beginning to offer programs. Berkeley offers one now in continuing ed. And some providers say they certify advocates. I'm a little suspicious of certification because it isn't a national certification. It's not a state certification. It's a provider saying this person has gone through my course, gone through my program, and so now I've certified her. But there isn't any kind of national standard. People come to patient advocacy via different routes, and it's become more active in the last 14 years. So some people come at it because they have the background like I do, and I did take a course, and then I've you know been doing and learning on my own. Some people get into it because they had a child who was sick, and they had to learn to maneuver the healthcare system on behalf of that child. And so they liked it and thought they were good at it and they became patient advocates. I think having a medical background makes it easier for me. I'm not saying it makes it better, but I think it makes it easier for me because I understand what's going on. Yes, part of it, I always think is speaking the language that's become a real barrier. So I also wonder if, you know, somebody who has a medical advocate is sort of more heard and maybe respected by doctors. Is this true? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I go to the nurse's station to complain or, you know, to get help. And just knowing that I'm there, it's not a huge difference. Sometimes it's a subtle difference. But yes, in speaking with doctors... The fact that I do know what questions to ask and how to ask them. And equally important, I know how they operate. You know, I know that in a teaching learning hospital, there's this person and then comes this person. And then down here at the bottom is this first year resident or whatever. I've had many situations where the physician says to me, I'm so glad you're here, particularly with somebody who can't keep track of what was going on. You're going from specialty to specialty. And I take my little notebook along. And I have my notes from what Dr. A said. And so then I'm with Dr. B and I go, no, no, Dr. A didn't want to do that. Dr. A wants this. So yes, I think it helps. And I try to be very respectful and not burden them. Yes, it's understandable that you as an advocate, as a consultant, you're more heard. On the other hand, I'm just thinking of all the people who don't have an advocate, you know, how difficult it is to communicate. And I'm sort of thinking outside the box. Is there something like a communication guide with doctors? (laughs) 
Well, you know, there is. You can go online and just search for things like, what questions should I be asking my doctor? I think the Mayo Clinic website, at least as a preliminary issue, say, you know, you have a liver disease and you're going for your first appointment. You can go to something like the Mayo Clinic and put in the diagnosis and they'll walk you through what it is, what you can expect, what treatments, diagnostics might occur, et cetera. You can find that for most major medical centers and how you can talk to your doctor. They're useful. One of the things that's really hard for patients, particularly patients with chronic pain or a chronic condition, is they kind of have a prepared speech that they want to tell everyone. And the doctor only has so much time. The doctor will ask a question and they will respond with their standard speech, but they don't necessarily answer the question. And so then sometimes I can say, well, what so-and-so is trying to say is, you know, people with chronic issues, there isn't any easy answer and they really want someone to give them some relief. And so they keep repeating their complaints and it's really hard. Right. I also had another question. How has COVID changed your work? Well, for one thing, they weren't doing any elective surgery if they could avoid it. And then when it came to it, they wouldn't allow me to go to the pre-op area with people. In fact, at one point, you couldn't get into the hospital with them at all, even during this time period. And the reason I think the pre-op area is so important is they take you in so early. It's anxiety producing. You're sitting there on this gurney alone and you're contemplating surgery. So it really helps to have someone there. And also because of the protocols, they won't give you medication until you've seen the anesthesiologist, until you've seen the doctor. If there's a delay, you can be in there an hour, two hours alone. And I just think it's terrible. When there's somebody who's got extra allergies or extra issues, it's really important to have someone there who advocates for them on that behalf. What I learned during COVID is I managed two incredibly complex cases, one at UC Davis and one in San Jose, totally on the phone. I had to. There was no point in me going to the facilities because they wouldn't let me in. And so I really learned how to work the phones and how to keep following through. It was very frustrating. It was very frustrating. But yeah, and and then the emotions of families whose family were in nursing homes or skilled facilities and couldn't visit them or could only look through a window. Handling that was really part of the problem. Yes, very difficult, I'm sure. Donna asks, do you work with people who have dementia and navigate patients and family? I have personal experience with my mother having had Alzheimer's and having to navigate her transition from one facility to the next and then her care. And I have had two clients with dementia. I did navigate their care. When they were in the hospital, I made sure to be there to explain what had happened, getting them to medical appointments, making sure they had live-in help and that they were safe. I've actually had one client that somehow got labeled demented. I had to work very hard to get that undone Mm -hmm. because it wasn't that she didn't have cognitive problems or some vascular issues. She actually had capacity to make decisions and to know what she wanted and didn't want, but being labeled with dementia, she suddenly couldn't make any changes in her life. Going back and unraveling that so that she could move forward and do what she needed to do in her life was really rare. It was quite challenging. And fortunately, we got it done. 
seems like sometimes, even though you're not acting like a lawyer, but it is like being a lawyer. Yeah, because I had to deal with estate attorneys and, you know, look up research on capacity and what was capacity and the definitions. It isn't a one thing fits all. Yeah, that was more lawyering on behalf of the client. Yes. Crystal asks, who has access to patients' medical records? Are family members allowed to see them? What happens to the medical records after the patient passes away? Well, under law, the medical provider has to keep them for a designated time. I think law records is at least seven years. I'm not sure how long for medical records, but I think even if someone's died, they can't get rid of them right away. They would have to keep them for a certain amount of time. The way it works with medical information is if you are in the presence of the client and the client doesn't say, I'd like you to step out, then healthcare providers will talk to you and exchange information in the presence of the client. But if you just walk down the hall and ask a question like, what is the blood pressure? They won't tell you, even if you're a family member. Now they tend to be looser about a spouse but adult children, not so. Whenever you have someone in a healthcare facility, the best thing is to get a HIPAA release. And they all have them and they're easy enough to do. They enter them into the record. That way you can call in and get information. They can talk to you. You can talk to the doctors, et cetera. And so I always do that. Nowadays, I also get, with their permission, of course, their username and password for the patient portal. It was incredibly important during COVID. One great advantage was I could track everything that was happening with the patient. I could email doctors and providers because I could get to the portal, but I had to get authorization for that and permission. Yeah, that makes sense. So in a way, this facilitates you participating in the patient care and advocacy. It's virtual and online now. And everything is there. You get the history and you get the test results. I would look for test results and I would see that the white blood count was up or it was down and could get on it right away. And this was happening in real time during the hospitalization. So that was really great because basically it's hard to get the records until they're out of the hospital, until they're discharged. Yes. So Carmen says HIPAA privacy rule protects individuals protected health information for 50 years following that individual's death. I've never heard of that, but I'll believe it. I really doubt that they store it that long. At some point, I think they destroy records, but I don't know that for sure. So I'll believe it, 50 years, that's a long time. <laughs> yes, and thank you, Carmen. Edith also asks, very concrete, where or how can Patricia be contacted should one need her services? I have a website. It's called Pacific Coast Health Advocacy, and my contact information is there. And Patricia, I'm just curious also, you're going to be your own advocate, I assume. For yeah. myself? for yourself. You know, if you ever have a health crisis, you will be your own advocate. Is this true? Or will you ask somebody else? It is interesting. The few times I've had to be hospitalized, my friend has hung out with me. She hasn't stayed 24 seven, but she spent the first day or so with me. And my last hospitalization, I found it difficult to be an advocate for myself. Basically what I became was the squeaky wheel. It was like, you know, why isn't this happening? I had a good relationship with my surgeon. So my surgeon actually called me. And so I could let him know what was going on. I felt vulnerable. And it's hard being a nurse and having a nurse come in that you feel is incompetent. 
you know, they were trying to start IVs and everybody seemed to be so nervous about it. And it was like, really, could you just kind of get a handle on this and get me someone who knows how to do this? It just reminded me of how vulnerable you feel when you're there and there's no one there with you. Um, Yes, there's a lot at stake too. Yeah, and I think it's that anxiety level again and stress. All of a sudden it's all about you and there's not the distance. One of the reasons I believe I can communicate effectively, sometimes better than the family, is I don't have a horse in this race. You know, I'm concerned about this person. I want what's good for them. I have an obligation to them, but I'm not emotionally involved. And that enables me, even when I have to complain. I don't bring the emotional juice to this. And that makes it easier for the healthcare providers to work. And I can also say to a discharge planner, I know your work is difficult. I wouldn't want your job, but you know, this is what we're trying to deal with now. And a family member is not going to say that the family member is going to see the discharge planner as an enemy who is trying to get their loved one out of the hospital too soon. And I understand where the discharge planner is coming from. I'm not going to let up on them, but I can also be empathetic and my communication is less emotional. Yes, that makes a lot of sense that you're sort of the professional consultant who knows the system. From what you just said, that you brought a friend, not everybody has the opportunity to hire a care manager or a medical advocate, which of course would be the ideal situation. But having a friend who becomes your advocate or is your advocate, it's better than nothing. Oh, definitely. Even if I'm involved, they're not going to pay me to be there, you know, all hours, as long as everything's going well. I always advocate that a family member be there to support them or someone to drop in and check on them. It's so much better and it's safer. I find the pre-op experience just kind of awful. I mean, the nurses are really nice and the facilities are really nice, but if you're the third case, you can spend a lot of time waiting for something to happen and It just makes your anxiety go up. Yes. Florence has a question which goes back to a story you told about the woman with pancreatic cancer. He asks, could you explain why the person with third stage pancreatic cancer chose palliative care instead of treatment? Is the treatment too painful or are there other reasons? Basically, because pancreatic cancer is so hard to detect, It's usually advanced beyond stage one. And the really aggressive treatment is a surgical procedure called a Whipple. It's a very long, long surgery with potential complications. The efficacy at that point is about 5%. And in the meantime, you've had this massive surgery. So that's one option. See, the problem is none of the options they give you are curative. I think if someone had said, If you will go through six weeks of chemotherapy and lose your hair and be nauseated and all that, 99% of the time we cure it and you won't see it again and you'll live to see your grandchildren. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying, well, we can give you some more time. Or if we do this procedure, it will give you some relief from pain, but that doesn't mean you won't get pain somewhere else. And she also has a lot of trouble with opiates. So all of the things they try to give her for pain relief don't relieve pain and end up making her miserable. So her decision was, it's my quality of life and I want to be able to function. The thoughts that she would go through any of these procedures, the chemo, the radiation, any of it, and not be able to function and then still die, it just wasn't an option for her. 
She had practice to shut down, to close. She had writings and things she wanted to distribute. She had things she wanted to do and she wanted to have her mind clear. So, yeah. And again, getting back to Katie Butler's talk, you know, she didn't choose treatment and she's doing okay. She's still going for walks. She's eating. She has some pain. The tumor's not nearly as aggressive as they thought it was going to be. So she's doing okay. The outcome is inevitable, but the time from when she got the diagnosis to now, she's used it really well. Thank you. You mentioned that Katie Butler was our guest on, at Home on Air. And I just want to also remind everybody that the conversation is available on our website, but also on different podcast platforms. And then Louise Aronson was also our guest. Louise is a resource in her book, Elderhood. All these conversations are on our website. I would encourage you to also subscribe to our podcast. Patricia and Talia, thank you so much for this thoughtful information. I wish you thank were my advocate. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you again, Talia. Really, you made this such an easy process. Thank you very much for all your support and your questioning. Thank you for being here and all that you do and for partnering with me on this journey. Susie, thank you for bringing us on and to all listening. May you continue to be well. Thank you all for listening and engaging in this important conversation about medical advocacy. Bye, everybody. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.